Hello, I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the pandemic. It's about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate our economies, enhance institutions, and make better policy choices. Today, our focus is rural Canada. Home to nearly 20% of Canada's population, rural Canada is an important contributor to GDP. With much of the pandemic response focused on cities and densely populated virus hotspots, how has rural Canada grappled with the pandemic? How have rural Canada's health and social services and businesses managed the associated challenges? What's the future for rural Canada's people, its infrastructure, and its natural resource reliance? Today, we're pleased to be joined at the Recovery Project by two experts in this area. Dr. Ryan Gibson is an associate professor and the Libro Professor of Regional Economic Development at the University of Guelph. He's published widely on the future of rural communities, community economic development, multi-community collaboration, philanthropy, and public policy. Um, his work has been focused here in Canada and internationally. Dr. Heather Hall, who's joining us today, is an assistant professor and the director of the Economic Development and Innovation Program at the University of Waterloo. Uh, her internationally and nationally recognized work has shaped government policy in a host of jurisdictions, and her work now uh, is focused on uh, technology and the mining sector in various communities in northern Canada. Thanks. Welcome to you both, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. So, Ryan, why don't you start us off by helping to paint a picture for us in rural Canada? When many of us think of rural Canada, we think of big spaces, vast open fields, and agriculture. But what does it look like from the perspective of demographics? What are the key characteristics of rural Canada? And, and why does rural Canada matter? It's a great question, and it's a very big picture when we look at what rural Canada is. Um, and it's important to recognize that there isn't um, one homogenous definition for rural. Uh, we have various types of rural communities across this country, ranging from the coastal outport communities to our agricultural communities to communities on the Canadian Shield or in the north. And we have an incredible diversity that is amongst our communities. As you mentioned right off the beginning, rural Canada is home to 18 to 20 percent of the national population, uh, depending on what definition we use to describe it. And what's really important to recognize is that there are six million Canadians that live in a rural community. Now, some of these rural communities might be experiencing economic in increases where we see new jobs, where we see new population growth, while some of these rural communities might actually be seeing population declines. At the end of the day, we use two key characteristics when we think about rural communities in this country. The first is that they are small population centers, so their populations uh, tend to be kind of under 10,000 if we're using the rural and small town Canada definition, or perhaps as large as maybe under 100,000 if we're using uh, a, a non-metropolitan definition for our population. The second characteristic is that there often are large distances between our rural communities. Um, so they're not side by side. We often have a, a fair bit of space and physical distance that needs to be overcome as we look to um, the services and the provisions that are provided there. 
In terms of some of the key demographics, they vary across the country because of this diversity. Uh, we do see communities that are growing in population. Those typically are more in the metro adjacent regions, so areas that are closer to urban areas. But we also see some communities that are losing populations. We have issues around out-migration in some communities. Um, but at the same time, we also see some positive news stories around newcomer attraction, uh, whether that's urbanites moving into rural areas or new immigrants moving into rural communities. At the end of the day, though, rural Canada plays a critical role in the national economy. Rural communities and the industries and the, and the activities that are taking place there contribute about 23% of the gross domestic product of this country. Historically, that has been linked to natural resource production, but increasingly rural communities are diversifying their economies, uh, looking at issues of manufacturing, looking at opportunities related to innovation and technology. At the end of the day, though, rural Canada is a significant site for our food production, our resource extraction, energy generation, manufacturing, and environmental stewardship. And at the end of the day, rural Canada is going to play a vital role in Canada's economic recovery um, through issues of food, through issues of finding made-in-Canada solutions, opportunities to perhaps shorten the, the supply chains, um, addressing issues of climate change, and promoting more um, sustainable forms of development at the end of the day. So rural Canada uh, means different things for different people along the way, and that's really important as we start to think about this, uh, particularly when we start to think about the impacts of COVID-19 and the notion that perhaps a single strategy for assisting rural communities may not be effective. We might need to start investigating how do we use place-based strategies that build on the local assets. So, so Ryan, that's a helpful point of departure. So a few important messages are that there's diversity in rural Canada, uh, that rural Canada is a substantive contributor to, um, to Canada's GDP, um, and that, you know, there are a host of, you know, benefits and certainly challenges associated to rural communities, you know, two of which being population and distance. And Heather, I'm wondering if you can comment for us on how rural Canada has been impacted by the pandemic. What I'm thinking about, you know, distance and perhaps a lack of concentration of services, that could be a real challenge and, and perhaps even frightening for some in the context of a health pandemic. What does that look like on the ground? A great question. And through the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, they conducted a survey in April to get a sense of some of the early impacts of COVID-19 on rural communities. And what they found was that people are really concerned about how their communities will be resilient and in some cases even survive this crisis. Keeping rural communities safe, ensuring healthcare systems can cope, and the impacts of widespread shutdowns on small businesses were some of the top concerns. We know with regards to people, um, much like the rest of Canada, rural Canadians are struggling with unemployment, there's uncertainty, there's fear, competing demands over work and providing childcare and fi family care. But I think one of the biggest impacts on people in rural Canada is access to broadband. We have rural communities where students cannot easily connect to virtual learning, where employees cannot easily work from home where people cannot easily connect to virtual medicine, where small businesses cannot easily transition to online sales because there is limited or no access to broadband. This is certainly not a new issue in rural Canada, but COVID-19 has certainly shone a huge spotlight on the digital divide that does exist in this country. 
With regards to the economy, we know that many of the sectors that rural communities depend on have been impacted across the country. The agricultural sector has experienced a number of challenges from later labor shortages to interruptions in the supply chains and markets. Some remote mine sites are on care and maintenance, while others are working at reduced activity levels. The tourism sector, which is vital to so many rural communities, is essentially at a standstill. And our small businesses, our, our mom and pop shops, are really struggling to survive the closure of their businesses. And then the added costs associated with new health and safety measures. These impacts are really deepened by the unique socioeconomic context in many rural communities, as Ryan mentioned. Rural communities often have smaller populations. This means they have a limited workforce and also a smaller tax base and capacity to be able to respond to these challenges like those brought on by COVID-19. Our economic activities often tend to be seasonal, like agriculture, fishing, and tourism. There's often a reliance on a smaller number of industries or sectors. And this means that the closure of even one business in a rural community can have a huge ripple effect through the entire socioeconomic fabric of that community. When it comes to healthcare, some rural communities have a hospital, but many have health centers, smaller health centers, and nursing stations with limited or no infrastructure to care for critically ill patients. Many of our rural health systems were already stretched before COVID-19. I was reading a, an op-ed in the paper over the weekend by the dean and the assistant dean for the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, and they indicated that only 8% of doctors and 3% of specialists practice in rural communities. Compare that to the population numbers that Ryan mentioned earlier, and you can see that there's a pretty chronic doctor shortage in many rural communities. They also argue that the healthcare needs in rural communities are often more complex. So you can certainly understand why rural communities are concerned about their healthcare systems coping, any added stress on the system could potentially devastate some communities. So that's a, a, um, a helpful overview, and I think a number of points that we'll have to pick up on um, as we continue through the conversation, especially when it comes to opportunities and challenges. And that that piece you mentioned by the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation uh, is fantastic. Uh, a number of us, it's been making the rounds and a number of us have been reading it. So we'll ensure that's posted along with the podcast. Um, just as a point of reference for those interested, um, it raised a, a series of issues, gaps um, that uh, rural Canada and rural Canadians um, may be facing and where potential investments would be well warranted in the, um, in the months and certainly in the years to come. Um, Heather, that issue of the digital divide of broadband that you raised, um, that's that's a major challenge, um, you know, a type of infrastructure that merits closer attention. But when you're talking about um, people, about economy, industry, health, all of those pieces are so tightly connected, it seems, in rural places. And Ryan, I'm wondering, looking ahead, what do you see as being the primary opportunities and challenges for rural Canada as we're starting to exit, you know, from COVID-19. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment is the uncertainty. We have a pandemic that has um, taken different shapes and different forms and created different responses over the past three months and will continue to do so over the coming weeks. And this has left many community leaders, voluntary organizations, businesses, and as well as government unsure about what are the next steps to adequately plan for the recovery. Um, and building on this, uh, we should kind of put a historical perspective of, although we've not seen a pandemic like COVID-19 before, our rural communities across this country are 
not immune to seeing periods of economic boom and bust. And over the past decades, we've had a considerable amount of learning that has taken place um, from past challenges that we've encountered uh, around the economy and how we might address them in terms of moving forward. Building on those experiences, as well as the survey results that Heather spoke about, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation released its first insight paper, and there were five key recommendations in terms of how we might move forward. And I'll share them briefly with you, and it's a delight to hear that they'll be available online as well. The first is a recommendation that we need to ensure that rural expertise is included in the response and recovery efforts. We need to ensure that this diversity of rural that we were speaking about doesn't get lost when we start to look at um, potential solutions or potential strategies at maybe the federal or the provincial level. By doing so, we sometimes lose the dynamics that make rural communities unique. Uh, we lose some of the dynamics around their economy. And so at the end of the day, that first recommendation really is that we need to involve rural people with rural expertise in the decision-making process as we move forward, whether that is a new program, a new policy, or perhaps even related to how things are delivered at the ground level. The second recommendation that emerged from the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation is the need to apply a rural lens um, as we start to look at policy and program options. So as we start to kind of envision what those new realities might look like, we need to start asking the questions around how do rural communities get impacted by policy or programs? And in many instances, we might have a situation where there's no intention to have a negative impact of creating a new policy or program. But if we're not thinking about the dynamics of rural communities, those smaller population centers, the larger distances, the issues of broadband that Heather was mentioning, we can sometimes create unanticipated consequences. So we need to make sure that we're applying a rural lens um, as we start to develop new initiatives as we move forward. The third recommendation is that we need to make sure that we have evidence and data about rural communities um, so that we can prepare for the future in the best way that we know how. This is going to mean that we need to start collecting data on rural communities. We need to analyze that data so that we truly know what's going on, whether it's related to employment trends, whether it's related to access to health and social services. We need to make sure that we've got that information. And at the moment, there, there is a gap that exists. And that often hinders the ability of local practitioners, local councillors and elected officials, even provincial and federal governments in terms of how they decide to move forward. In terms of moving forward, that our next recommendation is really around using the boots that are on the ground strategically. Governments across Canada have individuals as well as resources, but there's also non-governmental actors that are out there that can be actively engaged, that can provide their insights, their knowledge, that can help to build connections between groups as we start to devise policies and programs to enhance the economic recovery efforts. And we need to make sure that we don't exclude any of these voices and, and these people and organizations that have their feet on the front line um, in terms of moving forward. And finally, the last key recommendation that we'd come out with is that we need to provide some specific economic recovery and stimulus funding for rural communities. We have seen a number of initiatives that have taken place uh, across this country as well as many other countries in the world. 
But as we move into the recovery phase, economic stimulus funds need to focus on investments in 21st century rural development. We need to make sure that we're not romanticizing what rural development should be or what it has been or what it what have been perceived as, we need to make sure that we're making investments into new initiatives, new infrastructure that is truly for the 21st century. This might involve regional collaboration. It's going to involve broadband connectivity. It's going to be focused around how to build capacity of, of individuals and organizations. It's going to address issues of climate resilience. And we need to think about how not simply to replicate what we've always done, but to start thinking about it strategically as we start to move forward. Brian, thanks for that. So, you know, in, in, in connection to those critical issues or those critical areas of intervention, it sounds to me like it's a, a helpful recipe for future-focused investment, for future-focused analysis, right? Leveraging the expertise, using that lens, making sure there's evidence and data involved and engaged in decision-making, leveraging those who are already on the ground, and ensuring that funding is specific to rural places. And we know that in the context of recovery, the the taps will flow and there will be a series of investment just to try to, to boost, to get the economy moving again. And infrastructure will be one of those critical areas. And Heather, can, can you um, unpack for us what differentiates infrastructure projects? Because there's a big difference between a project that's, let's say, shovel-ready with a quick return and something that, as you've um, described, a shovel-worthy, a shovel-worthy infrastructure project that is an investment and that has long-term uh, returns on that, um, on that investment. Can you differentiate you know, between those two types of projects for us? Certainly. So one of the recommendations we do have in that economic recovery funding is to turn those uh, shovel-worthy projects into shovel-ready projects. And when we use the term shovel-ready infrastructure projects, these are projects that are essentially ready to go. The technical studies, the feasibility studies, engineering reports, all of those background materials have all been completed or are nearly complete and construction can begin almost immediately. Shovel-worthy projects are still really in that conceptual phase of development. And as Ryan mentioned, many of our rural communities have a strong history of living through booms and busts. And oftentimes, during those downturns, governments turn to infrastructure programs to help stimulate the economy. And what we've seen in the past is that many rural communities have projects that are worthy of investment, but they really lack that capacity and the resources to get them to that sh shovel-ready phase. So what ends up happening is rural communities might be excluded from those programs, so they might just not submit an application, or they might submit something that's a bit quick, uh, a smaller shovel-ready project. And we feel that sometimes this could inadvertently waste an opportunity to invest in a shovel-worthy project that might have provided more long-term development opportunities. And that's really what we hope that comes out of the conversation on this crisis and responding to this crisis is that we start investing in, in things that are going to contribute to long-term rural development. And that long-term development, um, as we had discussed off the top, was the issue of broadband as being a, a critical tool and being 
you know, a, a point of access for maybe increased health services, maybe differentiated business opportunities. Heather, as you mentioned, a really important element for education and students or even attracting and keeping people in rural communities. How can we quantify the need for broadband in a rural context? I think in terms of this, uh, we've had some very clear directions, both from policy, but also from um, the the CRTC, that broadband is an essential service. Um, and it's absolutely a requirement uh, for communities across this country, whether urban or rural. Um, Heather provided a number of really clear indications of this. You, you know, you can't be an entrepreneur. It compromises students' ability for online learning. Um, we have implications when we start looking at issues of telehealth or accessing mental health services. If you don't have broadband internet um, or you have a poor quality of broadband internet, all of a sudden um, those services and those opportunities all of a sudden exclude rural communities. And this is a really crucial tool that we need to figure out um, and roll out to communities. Uh, SURF over the past um, number of months and years has been advocating uh, that rural communities need to be better reflected in our policies and our strategies related to, to internet and broadband connectivity. And this includes both the hard barriers and the soft barriers that might be represented here. So this could be the difficult to serve regions where we need to put in infrastructure that allows people to access it. But it's also some of those soft um, barriers in terms of how are people people's skill set and capacities that are able to access the internet and utilize it to its full advantage. At the end of the day, one of our challenges, though, is that we have a significant gap in data, in research, and evaluation around broadband availability and its adoption. We also have some questions that are around its effectiveness from previous funding initiatives. Uh, and we need to use all of this information as we start to move forward uh, with rolling out of broadband so that all rural Canadians have this essential service that can facilitate their day-to-day, -day, their economics, as well as their connections to family, friends, and, and elsewhere. There's a really great initiative taking place here in southwestern Ontario called the Southwest Internet Fiber Technology, or SWIFT, which is looking at trying to build a multi-stakeholder partnership of local governments, of private industry, of the federal government, um, to start rolling out new broadband connectivity to underserved regions and that's something that is ongoing at the moment and is a really critical initiative that we need to see in other jurisdictions ensuring that um, those local dynamics get recognized as we start to to plan and to roll out and to evaluate. Heather, if we're to think about economies in rural communities, right, economies that are certainly impacted by infrastructure and infrastructure components, um, you know, for instance like broadband, when we think about um, what that looks like now and in the long term, can you help us um, unpack that a bit? You know, how do we understand or how can we quantify Canada's natural resource reliance in rural communities? And what does what does that mean for rural economies? When it comes to the resource economy, I think rural Canada has a very intimate relationship with the natural resources or the natural assets in their communities whether it's fishing, forestry, mining, agriculture, or even tourism. In many of our communities, natural resources provide the very foundation to the economy. It's part of the community's history. It's often tied to the identity of the community and the people who live there. 
Our natural resource sectors provide direct employment opportunities, albeit to a lesser degree than they have been um, previously, but they also provide a number of indirect employment opportunities through small businesses that serve and support those sectors. And they often contribute to community and social infrastructure in our rural communities. That being said, many rural communities are certainly more acquainted, as we've mentioned, with that boom-bust pattern of economic development. And they're also unfortunately more familiar with the devastating impacts of economic restructuring and closures on their communities. There's also a real frustration in many resource communities over who benefits and who decides when it comes to resource revenue sharing and resource management decisions. Uh, our colleagues, Sean Markey and Greg Halseth talk about the resource bank approach to development in resource rich regions like Northern British Columbia where resource assets like minerals have essentially been withdrawn from rural communities for decades to fund development elsewhere without a real clear return on investment back into those rural communities. This approach really deepens the socioeconomic trends we discussed earlier and the infrastructure deficits we see in some rural communities. In terms of what we can do about that, we're certainly um, arguments for new resource revenue sharing agreements with communities. Uh, we're hearing that in response to COVID-19 as well. More community input into resource management decisions, including provincial development agreements for new projects. And we're seeing a lot of progress in Indigenous communities through different types of agreements being negotiated with industry and or governments, where revenues are being shared and there's more local input into resource management decisions. So certainly a number of considerations there. You know, I find it interesting when you talk about that return on the investment, especially when we're talking about extractives and how so much of that revenue or so many of these spinoff industries aren't necessarily reinvested in those same places. What do you think um, the, the future of natural resource extraction, or even if we can reframe it and say maybe a better question, is what's rural Canada's role in a shift to sustainable, um, to, to more sustainable uh, extractive industries or more sustainable industries, you know, writ large, I'm thinking of wind energy, solar energy, you know, is there an opportunity or even a need to shift focus from specific types of extractives to other more sustainable uh, industries? That's a great question. And we're definitely seeing, I think, a focus on securing new opportunities for sustainable industries or the green economy in rural communities. Often some of our solar farms or wind farms, those are uh, in rural communities. We're also seeing old manufacturing spaces being converted to produce some of the technologies that we do need in our clean energy sector. That being said, we still rely on our resource sectors for food, for energy production and green technologies, which means we should also be pushing our natural resource sectors to be more sustainable and innovative through government regulations and incentives. And there's numerous examples from across the country of both resource companies, but also government and communities and other partners working together to create a more sustainable future. Uh, Metal Tech Alley in Trail, British Columbia is a great example, which is building on their history as a mineral processing community. They've had a pretty significant min mineral pr processing facility there to become world leaders in metallurgical product development and material sciences. So they're really pushing and advocating for things like digital fabrication and advanced materials, industrial recycling and the circular economy, and the industrial internet of things. So they're taking that traditional 
skill sets and that tacit knowledge that they have in mineral processing and trying to advance that through technology and a focus on the environment. There's also other examples in rural Newfoundland and Labrador where there's a small gold mining company who's been doing some really interesting work in partnership with Memorial University's Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook to take rock dust, which would essentially be a waste product for the mine, and use that to try and grow agricultural crops. And so we're certainly seeing a lot of different uh, and unique partnerships and ideas across the country in rural communities where they're pushing the resource sectors to be more sustainable and innovative. Those are those are great examples of the different innovative projects and you know things even happening in rural places. And I know often um, rural places can be attractive for a lot of people because of the close social bonds, the tight knit communities. Um, Ryan, can you tell us a bit about how social trust influences action and decision making? in rural communities. Yeah, you're absolutely correct that relationships are are critical in rural Canada, whether that's within businesses, whether that's within voluntary and non-profit organization. um, Relationships are are at the core. And there's a diversity in that social trust and the relationships throughout the country. And many of these are starting to be challenged or are being hindered by the current pandemic due to social distancing measures, physical distances, lack of broadband, and so forth. And this means that we need to kind of reflect on um, what are those core values that are really critical and how do we figure out how to move forward given the current landscape. There's a few different things that um, groups have been doing across the country, which is really exciting. We see opportunities where communities are maybe looking at things from a regional approach. So rather than just their own specific rural community, they might be looking at working with their neighboring communities on issues related to infrastructure investment around healthcare and and social service provision, maybe it's around education, maybe it's around recreation. But we're starting to see these um, opportunities where where folks are looking at things from a regional lens. We also know that um, the social trust is really critical when it comes to building partnerships. Um, We heard it in some of the examples that Heather mentioned, where we've got industry working with local governments, working with uh, Indigenous communities, working with social nonprofit organizations to really understand and better emphasize what are the key priorities for these communities, but also around what are the most appropriate strategies for moving forward. And this is really critical um, to have that social trust within those organizations as we build new partnerships or we enhance existing partnerships or we expand partnerships to make sure that all the voices um, that are constituting a rural community are actually getting incorporated or are being asked around how they would like to shape their future and how they would like to be engaged with that. We also see... uh, a great opportunity to really continue this conversation around social trust and and the partnerships and perhaps it's the the regional approaches um, and that this coming fall of 2021 uh, we the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation will host a conference around creating inclusive economies and building bridges between public private and civil society actors uh, where we're hoping that rural communities researchers government representatives will come together to share some of these stories around what worked well uh, looking at social trust and how is that important, uh, what maybe didn't work well and what we might learn from that experience or what we might learn from some of our colleagues that are outside of Canada that have uh, experienced a positive um, strategy for addressing this. 
But at the end of the day, the social fabric of rural communities is, is absolutely among those social connections. And it's what keeps people living in rural communities. It makes them attractive for newcomers, uh, but it also makes it attractive for people to visit these rural communities as well. Well, there's certainly a great deal happening in rural Canada. Um, and it's such a diverse place that's innovating on a host of fronts. You know, Heather, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us at the Recovery Project today and discussing how and why rural Canada warrants its own approach to support and encourage its people and its key industries as really valuable components and contributors to, to this country. So thanks very much for sharing your experience, your expertise, and your incredible research with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, it's been wonderful.